We've been talking a lot about God lately. We're going to con continue to talk about the true nature of God that is mostly ignored in uh, the modern church these days. I think I've started this series enamored with Piper's quote that we must reckon with the magnitude of God being God. And, and, and I, I've been a pastor for a long time now, and I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, I have the sense that uh, many people who sit in churches have never really, re never really reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. And so I hope this series does two things. I hope we begin to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God, but also what it means for God to be holy and us not to be holy, because the Bible's clear. We're not holy. You heard me just read the psalm. We are not holy. We need a Savior. And so this, this, this series should drive us to the cross. If you don't feel driven to the cross, you're not understanding what God is saying to us. You must have, you must have a great Savior. Religion's not going to save you, okay? Religion will take you to hell. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ. He condemned the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders who murdered him. You need a great Savior, just as I do. We all need a great Savior. God tells us, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that his wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is present tense. It's happening right now. It's happening right now. The relentless outworking of God's holiness against your rebellion, my rebellion, and every man, woman, boy, and girl's rebellion out in the world. Google tells me that 150,000 plus people will die today. What is that? Biblically, what is that? What is death? We know. We, we've talked a lot about it. I keep mentioning it. What is death? Death is the wages of sin. Why does every human being die? Because of sin. We talked about it last week. We talked a lot about it last week. That's why we're in the mess we're in. One sin brought down the cosmos. One sin blew up paradise. We've all earned our wages, and death is coming for each of us very, very soon. I just Googled the average human lifespan. Who wants to guess? This is not per particular country, but just 75. It's a good guess. 79. Not too bad. I got a few more. Got a few more years to go. False teachers in false churches tell us that God is constrained by His love. He will not judge. He's constrained by His love not to judge. Obviously, this is false. The uh, false teachers are refuted 150,000 times a day. Death is, in part, judgment. Physical death is. The Bible is clear. God has judged, God is judging, and God will judge. This is not some isolated, obscure, biblical truth. This is all the way, this is revealed uh, all the way through Scripture. Yes, the Bible tells us God is love, of course. 
The Bible tells us God is love. And if you go to any church in the world, almost on any Sunday, you'll hear about God's love. What you don't often hear is about the wrath of God. The Bible is clear. God contains within himself a hatred of sin, and his fierce wrath is provoked. Now, you can't read the Bible with any intellectual integrity and not come away understanding that. So, God, his in emotional life is infinitely complex. He's obviously more than one thing. But you go, again, you go to your average church, love, 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 love. It's not wrong to preach the love of God, but it's wrong to preach it in a vacuum. It's always wrong. Half of truth is always a full lie. We must be, we must have integrity with the text. Yes, he is love, but he is fierce wrath. So I want to say something to you. It may be a little confusing. I don't know. It's always helped me to have intellectual integrity with all of the attributes that God has revealed about himself. All of God does all that God does. Okay, let me try to explain that. All of God does all that God does. We know, again, if we have a biblical view of God, we know there are many facets to him. He's like a, he's like a multifaceted jewel. And every, every direction you turn him, you see a different aspect or characteristic or attribute of God. But let me try to explain it. God's justice is expressed in perfect symmetry with his mercy. Okay? God's compassion is expressed in perfect symmetry with his vengeance. God's wrath is expressed in perfect symmetry with his love. And etc., etc., etc. All of God does all that God does. I love how John Piper, American preacher in the States, says it. Listen. This is him. Let me quote him. There is a perfect beauty and coherence in how all God's attributes cooperate. But neither is he without complexity. His character is more like a symphony than a solo performance. Listen, wherever you go from here, and I know all of you will, whatever church you land in next, if you're hearing a one-note preacher... If all he can do is preach love, 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 you are in a false church and you are sitting under a false preacher. If all you can hear is health, wealth, and prosperity, health, wealth, and prosperity, health, wealth, and prosperity, you are in a false church sitting under a false teacher. Again, God is like a multifaceted diamond. He has many attributes. And if we're going to truly worship Him, we have to be mindful of every one of them. And I'll say this, to ignore one or more of them is to blaspheme God. You say, Jim, well, I just don't want to hear that part. Well, you need to hear that part. It's part of your Creator. It's part of who He is. I just want to caution you, when you're in a one-note church, you are in a false church. In Peter's second letter, he reveals that... Sure, judgment will befall every false teacher. And then he reminds us of Yahweh's unfailing track record when it comes to judgment. 2 Peter 2.4, Peter says this, But God cast them into hell and committed them into the pits of darkness reserved for judgments. He's talking about the angels there. He judged the angels. He's judged the ancient world with Noah. 
Peter says, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 2 Peter 2.5. 2 Peter 2.6, he talks about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In condemning them to destruction and reducing them to ashes as an example of those who would live ungodly thereafter. So tonight, what I want to do, we're going to take a few minutes, we're going to look at the flood, we're going to look at God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Beloved, it's, it's important for us to, to be still and look at all of God's Word. To imbibe deeply in all of God's Word. So, I do get this at times. You probably do too. If you're a Bible believer out in the world, some professing Christians consider themselves a bit too sophisticated to believe in the biblical account of Noah, the ark, and the animals. But guess who believed it? Who in the Bible believed it? Who talked about it? Jesus Christ believed it. Listen to what Jesus Christ said. Jesus was talking about his second coming and the, the, the judgment that would accompany him. And he um, says this, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus Christ believed in the ark and the animals and the flood and the judgment. It was his edict. It was his decree. It was he, he uh, shall we say, Sovereignly directed that torrent. He's the king of the universe. He judges his creation. So why the flood? You know why. To echo last week's sermon, it was sin. It was sin. Moses writes, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. How many people did God save in the flood? How many? Very good. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Why Noah? The text is clear because Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Verse 8, chapter 6 of Genesis. Or as I think it's the New King James Version renders it, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Now, this is a beautiful text because we understand New Testament salvation right here. By the grace of God, by the overture of God, right? By the mercy of God, Noah is saved. If you are saved today, it is by the sovereign grace and mercy of your Creator. Hebrews 11:7 tells us that by faith, Noah, being warned of God, prepared the ark. Of course, you guys know Hebrews 11. It's about what real faith is, God's definition of faith, and what it looks like in a life. If you don't understand what God's definition of faith is, all you got to do is go read Hebrews 11. 
He defines it, then he uh, illustrates it for us. If you don't understand what God is expecting um, in you, if you claim to have faith in Christ, just go to Hebrews 11 and read it. God initiates and mankind responds. This is always the pattern all the way through the Bible. So what does Hebrews 11 tell us? God warned Noah, right? God always initiates. Men respond to the initiation of God. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. Repentance is granted by God. 2 Timothy 2.25. So I, I don't think anybody here is like this, but you know, I, I've met a lot of puffed up religious people, man. They're proud. You know, I'm, I go to church and I give a bunch of money and, you know, I say nice things and I pray pretentious prayers and I'm a really impressive individual. They don't actually say these words, but it's implicit in their conduct and in their thinking. Listen, if God doesn't give the gift of faith and God doesn't grant repentance, there's nothing of eternal value going on. All I'm saying is, I want you to understand, God graciously showed favor and grace to Noah. And through Noah, He saved a remnant. He saved a remnant of mankind. In keeping with God's long-suffering nature, uh, He gave mankind ample warning. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? Who knows? 120 years. What was Noah doing while he was building the ark? He was preaching. How many people repented? How many people repented? How many people, uh, yeah, turned from their sin and ran to their Creator? How many? None! Zero! It's almost like today, right? Let's God bring a great revival. There's only a remnant, man. The remnant, right? Jesus told us there'd be a remnant. There's a remnant! How many, you know, the validity of God's judgment upon mankind is seen right here. There were none. There were none who repented of their sins. So I'm going to read this text to you. It's in uh, Genesis 7, 11 through 24. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to take some excerpts out, but just listen. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Thus God blotted out every living thing that was upon the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. There's something you have to notice here <laughs> in this account, right? This is not a legend. This is not a myth. This is not once upon a time. Did you notice? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month and on the 17th day of the month. This is a historical account. Now, I know the naysayers, the unbelievers and the uh, liberal apologists, I know they don't believe, they believe this is a metaphor or they believe it's a local flood or, it's, it, or they mythologize it, right? You've probably heard these kinds of things. This is uh, unfortunately epidemic in the modern church. God is presenting it to us as a historical account. Uh, 
Again, we're either Bible believers or we're not. God is presenting it to us as an historical account. It's interesting, I, I did some research on this. There are hundreds of flood legends all over the world, okay, from different cultures and widely dispersed groups. There are hundreds from hundreds of different people groups, legends of the great flood. There's a lot of unanimity here. So unless uh, you are a biblical reductionist, which there are many, um, we have to receive the historical account from Scripture. It's true, I've learned this sadly, that many so-called Christians don't kick in until after Genesis 11. They don't like the creation account. They don't like Adam and Eve. They don't like the garden. They don't like the fall. They don't like Noah's Ark. They don't like the Tower of Babel. So they mythologize it. They turn it into legend or fable. Um, this is how God's Word is handled in many, many places. Again, I'll say it. We're either Bible believers or we're not. You know, I say at your own peril, edit God. Okay? At your own peril, edit God. At your own peril. Apart from Noah, again, his wives, his sons and their wives um, were saved. Genesis 7.23 tells us that God blotted out. What does that word mean? Blotted out. He erased everybody. God did it. Hey, he's unapologetic here. Karen and I were walking yesterday. The thing I'm learning about this series is God is unapologetic about how he runs his universe. He doesn't care if you like it or not. And I know I have a lot of people that, you know, you talk to people, you witness to people, and, and they're judging it. And they're saying, well, I can't believe that story. You know, that sounds like a cartoon. It sounds like a legend. You know, and they stand up and they're superior. They put themselves over the revealed Word of God. I don't like that. How many people died in the flood? We have no idea. Scholars estimate a quarter of a million to over a billion. I heard John MacArthur preach this. I was running this week and I was listening to him preach on the flood. He comes up with a number of seven billion. Now, I don't know what his source was, but he is a, he is a trusted expositor. My point is, nobody knows. God knows. God knows. He knows how many souls he took out. He knows how many men, women, boys, and girls received their wages that day. He knows. God knows. He knows. So here's an important truth for us, beloved. God gives life and He takes it. And when someone dies, it wasn't an accident. I hope you're mature enough to understand this. When someone dies, it wasn't bad luck. The psalmist tells us that God has numbered our days before yet there was even one of them. I think it's Psalm 139. God says, Deuteronomy 32, 39, I am He and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and I give life. Life and death is the prerogative of God. You will not live one second longer nor die one second sooner than God has ordained. So in my mind, this frees me up. 
Okay, I'm completely freed up. I do not have to be afraid of anything. I will not lose my life until God takes it. It's impossible. It can't happen. He gives it and He takes it. Okay? This is a pretty important lesson for us to learn. Sadly, your average professed Christian could not talk like this. They could not begin to even formulate a sentence like this. Here's the important lesson. Karen said it to me today. She goes, oh, I love that sentence. Let's see if you love it. God does not put the life of man above his glory. I, I, I understand on one level, but I detest it when I hear people crying out, why? You know, people, especially people who profess to be Christians. Why has this person died? Why have they died? If we're biblically literate, God gives, God takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Doesn't mean we don't mourn, of course. Of course we do mourn if they are our loved one. But God doesn't put the life of man above his glory. His glory is always first. I know that most pulpits preach the, uh, in such a way that you think you're first. You believe you're first. Can I say lovingly, you're not first. I'm not first. God is uppermost in the mind of God. And this is good news to us because he's our reward. He is our reward. I'm going to say it one more time. God does not put the life of man above his glory. You and I need to be able to... This needs, hey, this needs to be part of our theological understanding, part of our theological lexicon. So when God judges, I said this to you, I think last week, I'll, I'll just use David's words, Psalm 51. When God judges, he is blameless. So if you're going to accuse God, which I certainly, you know, warn you not to do, that's, that's an accusation that will not stick. God's word says he is blameless when he brings judgment. Yes, God is gracious. But when once his long-suffering patience has been exhausted, he will be glorified in the execution of perfect justice. And I read the ultimate theodicy to you last week, Romans 9, 22 and 23. Can I say... And I say, you need to be deep into these things. God means for you to be deep into these things. Well, Jim, I don't have time to go to seminary. You don't have to go to seminary. Be a student of the Word of God. Right? Be a student of the Word of God. Read good theologians. Sound theologians. If you don't know one, call me. I'll tell you. You should be deep into these things. They should, they should you know, make your soul soar. My God is the sovereign reigning king. I can't die until my appointed moment. I can't. But I will at the appointed moment because my God is sovereign. I don't have a little teeny God. I have an unspeakably awesome God who does all he pleases in heaven and earth. Beloved, I want you to have this. And if you don't have this view of God, I don't think you know him. 
He's not just God in name, He's God in deed. God means for you to tremble with delight at His godness. Okay? <laughs> Psalm 2.11. <laughs> Worship and reverence, delight and trembling. I think is how it goes. I think that's how it goes. Jonathan Edwards is right. Famous American theologian, 18th century. Listen, God has had it on his heart to show to angels and to men not only how excellent his love is. Okay, we get it. Everybody's a beneficiary of the common grace of God. He feeds the just and the unjust. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Not only how excellent his love is, but also how terrible his wrath is. Beloved, if you don't understand this, you're biblically illiterate. This is what the Word reveals about our Creator. So let me ask you, what is the job of a good judge? What is the job of a good judge? Dispense justice? It's not in his job description to extend grace. That's not in the judge's job description. His job description is to dispense justice. What do you get if God simply dispenses justice? What do you get? He's a good judge if he just gives you justice. He's a good judge. In fact, he's a perfect judge because he gives perfect justice. You see how, you see how the true character of God drives you to Jesus Christ, do you see? Man, if you don't have a great Savior, you're gone. You're toast forever. Okay? If you don't have Jesus Christ, if you have not come to a place where you're in a saving, living, dynamic relationship with Him, and it matters every day you get up, you've got huge problems. Because you're going to stand before this God without the covering of Christ. And guess what's going to happen to you? If you're guilty of one sin... How many of you are guilty of one sin? If you're guilty of one sin and you stand before this God, it's hell forever. Jim, I don't believe in hell forever. Okay, okay, don't believe in it. But you'll stand before him soon. Then you'll believe in it. You will believe in it. You say, Jim, these messages are too pointed. They're too hard. I know. I know. I know. I'll stop with that. So God killed a quarter of a million to one billion men, women, boys, and girls in the flood. Does this offend you? Why would it offend you? He's simply being a what? Good judge. He's on record. The wages of sin is death. If he takes out seven billion, if John MacArthur is right, if he took out seven billion it was perfect justice. He was a good judge. He owes nobody grace. Grace is unmerited favor. He doesn't owe it to you. He doesn't owe it to me. All right. That's a little bit about the flood. Let's move, let's move on. Let's fast forward about 300 years. I'm in Genesis 18, verse 1. Genesis 18, verse 1. Abraham's reclining at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Yahweh comes to him. 
Genesis 18, 1. This is the God that Isaiah saw. We talked about some weeks ago. This is a theophany. What is a theophany? It's a visible manifestation, visible manifestation of God. This is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Okay? This is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. God comes promising Abraham and Sarah a miracle child. Sarah laughed. And what does God say? <laughs> you got to love it. What does God say? Is anything too hard for me? <laughs> Is anything too hard for me? Nothing's too hard for Jehovah. He can save the likes of you and the likes of me. Praise God, nothing's too hard for Him. Right? I always love that line. Nothing is too hard for God. Here in this account, God had another purpose in mind, not simply to promise them a miracle child. He came to confide in Abraham about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham asked this question out of nowhere. He said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Why, why, why would he ask such a question? He's 10 generations from the flood. Everybody knew what the flood was about. Abraham knows what's going on in the, in the cities. He knows what this is about. He knows that God's a perfect judge. He knows what's about to happen. He doesn't have Romans, is it 623, the wages of sin is death in his, in his mental lexicon. He doesn't have that, but he doesn't need it. He can do the math. God's holy. Sodom and Gomorrah is not. It's not going to go well. So Abraham has done the math. He understands that wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror is on its way. But Abraham asked God a question. Do you remember? What about the righteous? And so we get this, we get this intercession between Abraham and God, right? And Abraham just keeps taking the number down and down and down. And finally, God says, I will not destroy it for 10 righteous. And then God departs, the text tells us. So we learn that God's justice is flawless. It's impeccable. It's pure. It's perfect. Indeed, as David said, he is blameless when he judges. I'm going to pick up here. Genesis 19, 1 through 3. You can follow along if you like. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting at the gate. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed down to them. He recognized they were messengers from God. Verse 2, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. No, but we shall spend the night in the square, the angel said, verse 3. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered into his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked them bread and they ate. So Lot is Abraham's nephew. Most of you, I'm sure, if not all of you know the story. These are messengers from God. <clears throat> it's why God brought them in the first place. All right. This is a cool thing. Abraham's asking about the righteous. God has already made provision for the righteous, right? Don't you love this? Abraham's praying about, what about the righteous? God's made provision for them. That's why the angels are going in. The angels are going in to get the righteous. I love this story, man. This is what he does in our lives, right? He makes provision for the righteous. And who are the righteous? The remnant of God are the righteous. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
Before they lay down that night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all of the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Now, I don't know what translation you have, but um, obviously... The Living Bible, which is, I believe is a paraphrase, it actually uses the word rape. So we're talking about homosexual rape here is what the text is alluding to. Being wholly consumed by lust, the men of Sodom persisted. The angels struck them with blindness to render them harmless. The angels told Lot and his family that God was going to destroy Sodom. Lot's sons-in-law were unconvinced. And even Lot himself hesitated. I'm going to pick up here verses, uh, verse 16 of, of, of chapter 19. But Lot hesitated, verse 16. So the men, the angels seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. God came and got his people. This is a beautiful, really there's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff here, but we, we don't have time to, to, uh, to tease it all out. Genesis 19, 24 to 25, and also 28. God rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of the heavens, and he overthrew their cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. How many died? We have no idea. It could be thousands. Most likely it's tens of thousands because it's all the cities of the plains in the valley. Okay? Likely tens of thousands. I just wanted to stop and ask you, what will be the body count when Jesus returns? What will be the body count when Jesus returns? When the angry lamb returns, what will be the body count? Billions. Billions. Say, Jim, that's not very hopeful. Hey, man, I'm giving you the hope. The hope is Christ. The hope is Christ. It's the only hope you have and I have. He is the only hope. There is no hope apart from the Son of God. You can't play religion with him. Listen, what's Jesus' definition of salvation? What is it? John 17, 3. That they may what? you got to know this. If you're a Christian, you have to know this. If you don't know this, I'm going to rebuke you lovingly. The definition is that they may, Jesus is praying, they may know you. He's praying to the Father. If you don't know him right now tonight, beloved, what I'm saying to you is you've got a huge problem. He is your only hope. You can't hope in religion. You can't hope in your priest or your elders or your pastor or your sacraments or your ordinance. You've got to have Jesus Christ. Or this is, what, this is what we're facing. If we stand before God without a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm skipping something in my notes for the sake of time. So only four were saved from the fire of heaven. Every other man, woman, boy, and girl in the valley were killed. Why do I keep reminding you that every man, woman, boy, and girl were killed? 
because I know that it's a natural human inclination to recoil at this statement. But this is the deal. This is where God is God and you are not. Well, it's always true. But it's particularly true here, right? This is what it means to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Again, he's not seeking your, he doesn't, he's not seeking your approval. It doesn't matter if you approve or not. God probably could not be less interested in whether you approve or not. This is his universe. He runs it the way he pleases. And I'm going to say it again. When he judges, he is blameless. Psalm 51. He is blameless when he judges. He is the perfect judge. And he is blameless. And I just want to say this to you, beloved. God means for you to grapple with this. God means for you to understand his holiness. God means for you to see how much he hates your sin. And that's what all of this series is about, that you would understand how God hates your sin. And I know some of you, right? We've got a small group here, but some of you kind of have a casual attitude about your own sin. This is not, you can't reconcile a casual attitude with the Word of God when it comes to sin. God does not, God does not intend for you to look away when He says, He took the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl. God does not mean for you to look away. God means for you to look at it. God means for you to deal with it. Because that's what your sin deserves. That's what your sin deserves before a holy God. It's always quorum Deo. We live before the face of God, in the presence of God. You know, whether that means anything to you or not, we all live before the face of God. There should be a certain sense of urgency here for any thinking person. So you know the story. Lot's wife longingly, longingly looked back to Sodom and she perished. Jesus said in Luke 17, remember Lot and his wife? And then he said this, this is the most repeated phrase of Jesus in the Gospels. It's in the Gospels six times. Jesus said this, whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. Lot's wife turned and looked. She had a longing for the world, right? Jesus uses her as an example. I'm going to read uh, a couple of Eugene Peterson's paraphrases of the six times that Jesus says this because it really makes it crystal clear. I want you to hear it. This is a paraphrase of the texts, the New Testament text, where Jesus is saying, whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. This is a little bit cryptic. Some people have a hard time understanding it. This will make it crystal clear. Peterson writes this. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. That's brilliant. You'll never find yourself. It's a fool's errand. He continues. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. This is God speaking. If you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you'll lose it. Again, this is brilliant. But if you let, it, if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms. 
Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. That's what happened to Lot's wife. She turned and looked and she perished. She wanted to hold on to what she was. You can't hold on to what you were. What you were will take you to hell, man. You need Christ. You need to be changed. You need to be born again. Right? Business as usual is not going to get it done. The last phrase Peterson writes is, but if you let go of the old life, you will have new life forever, real and eternal. I love this. So in other words, if you're wholly vested in this world as Lot's wife was, if your first love is this life, you will lose all of it very, very soon. It simply means you have never truly lived at all. Jesus is saying, if you've repented of loving the world and your sin more than me, if you stopped loving uh, the life you had without me and you've begun to love the life you have with me, then you have found pur the purpose for which you were created. It's true. Now, those of you who are born again, understand. When you're born again, you realize that what you thought life was is not life at all. It's a lot of inhaling and exhaling. There's no real life going on. You know, C.S. Lewis, Lewis brilliantly uh, uh, compares the spiritual life to the physical life. And he calls the, the spiritual life bios. It's, 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 it's really alive as compared to a concrete statue. Those of you who are born again understand. So let me finish up. Jesus ultimately is saying, you must die to death. You must die to death. Some of you probably in here have not died to death. You're still holding on to death. There is a death to self before we can ever enter into the life of God. Christianity has always been about death and resurrection, not just His, but ours. Lot's wife refused to die to death, and she perished. You know the great text, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Let me ask you, have you been crucified? It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Has that, is that, has that happened in your life? This is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. So, as I finish, uh, it's incumbent upon me in touching on the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah just, just to touch on the issue of homosexuality. It's so in our face in this fallen culture. And um, just the biblical perspective, you know, many, many seek to explain the well-defined revelation of God with respect to homosexuality. They, 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 they want to reinterpret it. They want to ignore it. Um, Unbelievably, some call it hate speech, what God has to say. God is both unambiguous and unapologetic in both the Old and New Testaments. He forthrightly condemns homosexuality, period. As he does every other form of sexual perversion. Fornication, adultery, pornography, bestiality, you name it, he condemns it all. He condemns it all. And I want to say this. 
Yeah, this, this, this light, it's like a light comes on for some people when I say this. And I think you might miss, miss the bus. You, you want to go? Do you need to go? Go ahead. Um, who invented sex? Who invented it? God. Does he not, is it not God's prerogative to set boundaries on it? <laughs> hey man, you can't, you can't joust with Yahweh. It's a losing proposition. It is a losing proposition. So what's our job in this depraved culture? What's our job? Lovingly speak the truth. We lovingly speak the truth. That's what we do. We just lovingly speak the truth. They can call us, you know, haters, and they can call what we say hate speech. But we know that we speak the truth, which can, by the grace and mercy and sovereign power of God, save a soul from going to hell. Now that's love. If you've got a, if you've got a, a message of love like that, right, that's love. So don't be intimidated in the world. You be God's witness in the world. You just say what it is. Lovingly say what it is. That's a sin. Lovingly say that's a sin. Whether we're talking to a homosexual or a fornicator or an adulterer or someone who engages in pornography, right? That's a sin. Or someone who gossips or someone who lies. Whatever it is, that's a sin. The, the, the person who has love says that's a sin. And that's why, that's why we're no longer in paradise. That's why the flood came. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah got blown up. Because of sin. Now, if you love people, you tell them that. This is what we're called to do, beloved. I know it's not popular, but this is what we are called to do. And I'm done. Let me read this. But for those who sin with a high hand before their Creator... God has a warning to all who would be arrogant before him. Isaiah 5 and Romans 1 combined. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, who give hearty approval to those who practice sin. Don't call yourself a Christian. And go out in the world and give hearty approval to those who practice sin. Beloved, you're supposed to love them enough to share the truth with them. It's your job. It's, the, it's really, it's the preeminent job you have on the planet. Sharing the gospel. Sharing the truth. Being a witness. All of your other responsibilities are subordinate to that. It's the only reason God hasn't taken you home yet. He's left you here. To love people enough to share the truth with them. Man, there's so much stuff here in this. I, we got to stop, but there's so much stuff here. Let's pray together.